0: On the evening of June 12, 1994, a large white dog wandered nervously around the upscale neighborhood of Brentwood in Los Angeles, California. The dog appeared to be distressed, wailing and barking and pacing. Pablo Fenves and his wife, Jay, were watching the evening news in their bedroom. Sometime after 10 p.m., they began to hear the dog barking outside. Pablo called the barking persistent and unusual. Initially, he thought nothing of it and went to his study to do some work. But when he returned to the bedroom just before 11, the dog was still barking. Pablo said it was not an ordinary bark, but a plaintive wail, like a very unhappy animal. At 10.35 that same night, Robert Heidstra was walking his dogs around the Brentwood area. He also heard the dog making what he called a panicking sound. At around 10.40, he said he heard a young male adult voice say, hey, 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 and then heard another voice respond. He could not make out what the voices were saying, but he said it sounded like an argument between two male voices. He then heard the sound of a gate slamming shut. Nearby, Stephen Schwab was also walking his dog. As he passed an alley, he came across the dog, which he recognized as an Akita. The dog was very distressed and he tried to comfort it. He allowed the Akita to sniff him, and then he looked at the dog's collar. The collar did not have anything written on it, no owner name, no address so he had no way of helping the dog return home. Eventually, he continued on his route. The dog followed him. He made it home shortly after 11 p.m. and told his wife about the unexpected companion. Later, a friend of Stephen's, Shukru Bostepe, came over to visit. Shukru also noticed that the dog was acting very strangely, as if it was nervous or uncomfortable about something. After some discussion, Shukru agreed to take the dog home with him for the night. However, when he took the dog to his apartment, it was so restless and nervous that he and his wife Bettina decided to take it for a walk, hoping it would lead them to its owner. They set out into the night, following where the dog led them. Shortly after midnight, they arrived at 875 Bundy Drive. The dog stopped there and stared down the pathway toward the house. When Shukru and Bettina peered through the darkness and saw what the dog was looking at, they were shocked.
1: I saw a lady laying down, full of blood. I could see the person was a lady. She was blonde. I could see her arm. And that's about it.
0: Welcome to the Crimes and History podcast, where we remember the true crimes that changed the world. Please note that our episodes often deal with extreme violence, and may not be suitable for all listeners. See the show notes for the sources that we used to create this episode, and follow us on Twitter, at CrimesHistory. At 12.09 a.m. on June 13th, Officer Robert Risky was dispatched to the home of an elderly lady who complained that someone was banging loudly on her door. It quickly became apparent that the people banging on her door were Shukru and Bettina, and they were trying to get her to call the police. Once the reason for the call was cleared up, Shukru pointed Officer Risky in the direction of the house to which the dog had led him. There, Risky found the body of a barefoot woman in a black dress lying at the base of a set of stairs that led to the front door of 875 Bundy Drive. She was surrounded by a massive pool of blood. Officer Risky knew immediately that this was the scene of a murder. He pulled out his flashlight and began looking for other victims or the assailant. Piercing through the darkness with his light, he discovered another body slumped against the fence. It was the body of a muscular young man. When I was on the other side, I noticed that one of his eyes was
2: open. So I approached him and I shined my light to see if there was any movement in his pupil. There was none, it remained uh, fixed and dilated. And I touched his eyeball with my finger get any involuntary reaction, such as twitching of the eyelid, a uh, movement of the head, if it just basically verifies that he was dead.
3: And you found what?
2: That he was dead.
0: Risky found several other items nearby, a black hat, a white envelope stained with blood, and a black leather glove. He also noticed a single heel print near the woman's body. At the edge of the property that bordered Pablo's, He noticed a set of bloody shoe prints and what looked like fresh drops of blood. As Officer Risky secured the scene and prepared to call for investigators, he noticed several things that indicated to him that this was not going to be an ordinary murder scene. He found a letter on the table with a very recognizable name in the return address, O.J. Simpson. There was also a large picture of the famous football player on one wall inside the house. Not wanting to alert the media before anyone really knew what was going on, Risky decided to call his boss from a phone rather than calling the scene from his police radio. Soon, a swarm of police officers and detectives began arriving on the scene. Mark Furman was the first detective there. Furman had been on the force for 19 years, a detective for the previous five years. Later, senior detectives Ron Phillips, Tom Lang, and Philip Van Adder joined Furman at the crime scene. Risky showed all of them what he had found. The two bodies, the black hat, the bloody envelope, the single leather glove, and the bloody shoe prints. It soon became clear to the detectives that they had a very unpleasant task ahead of them. They had to go across town to tell O.J. Simpson that the body they found at the foot of the stairs was that of his ex-wife, Nicole Brown Simpson. Nicole Brown was born on May 19, 1959 in Frankfurt in what was then West Germany, to a German mother and an American father who was stationed in the country while serving in the Air Force. When Nicole was a toddler, her family moved to California, and Nicole grew up in the state. According to one of her teachers, Nicole was always happy and smiling. As a teenager, Nicole enjoyed playing on the beach. In her senior year of high school, she was the homecoming princess at Dana Hills High School in Dana Point, California. Shortly after she turned 18 and graduated from high school, Nicole enrolled in Saddleback College to pursue a career in modeling and photography. It was around the same time that she met O.J. Simpson. She was a waitress at a club called The Daisy. He was a famous Heisman Trophy winner and NFL football star in the latter stages of a Hall of Fame career. Even though he was married at the time, Nicole began dating him. Eventually, Nicole dropped out of college and moved in with O.J. She said O.J. asked her to drop out so she could be with him all the time and accompany him on all his business travels. In 1985, Nicole and O.J. were married at his Rockingham estate. By that time, he had retired from playing football and was transitioning into a career in broadcasting and acting. Their marriage was passionate and volatile. It was well known that OJ was wildly possessive of his wife. Nicole's sister Denise said that one time while she was at dinner with the couple, OJ grabbed Nicole's crotch and said, this belongs to me. The marriage appeared to alternate between periods of intense happiness and explosive violent arguments. A number of these arguments resulted in the police being called. In 1989, police responded to a call at the Simpsons' home. Where Nicole told them, quote, he's going to kill me. It was the eighth time that police had responded to domestic violence calls at the home. OJ was told that night to go to the police station for questioning related to his suspected abuse of Nicole. Instead, he drove off in his Bentley. Still, he was ultimately sentenced to just 120 hours of community service. Nicole filed for divorce from OJ in 1992. However, over the last two years of her life, her and OJ tried to reconcile. Author Sheila Weller said that, quote, they were a dramatic, fractious, mutually obsessed couple before they married, after they married, after they divorced in 1992, and after they reconciled. The relationship did not end for good until shortly before Nicole's death. In October 1993, eight months before her death, Nicole called 911 again. During the call, Nicole pleads with the dispatcher to send someone to her house because OJ was there and had broken the door to get in
2: three two five gretna green he's back please well, okay what does he look like he's o.j simpson i think you know his record could you just see somebody uh, over here okay what is he doing there he just drove up again <laughs> he just drove up. over wait a minute what kind of car is he in he's in a white bronco but first of all he broke the back door down to get in before. okay wait a minute what's your name nicole simpson okay is he the sportscaster or whatever yeah okay thank what is you a, wait a minute we're sending the police what is he doing is he threatening you I'm going nuts. Okay, has he threatened you in any way, or or is he just harassing you? <sighs> You're going to hear him in a minute, minute. He's about to get to me. Okay, just stay on the line. I don't you? want to stay on the line. He's going to beat the... Wait a minute. Wait, just stay on the line so we can know what's going on until the police get there, okay? Okay, Nicole? Uh-huh. Just a moment. Does he have any weapons? I don't know. Okay. He went home. He's are back? Okay. The kids are up sleeping and I don't want anything to happen. Okay. Has he hit you today or no? No. Okay, you don't need any paramedics or anything? Uh-uh. Okay. You just want him to broke leave? He broke my door. He broke the whole back door in. And then he left and he came back? Then he came and he practically knocked my upstairs door down but he pounded it and then he screamed and hollered and I tried to get him out of the bedroom because the kids were sleeping in there. Mm-hmm. Okay. and then he wanted somebody's phone number and I gave him my phone book and was going to, or I gave, put my phone book down to write, to write down the phone number that he wanted and then mm-hmm. he took my phone book with all my stuff in it. What? What is he saying? What else? Well, you're just a missed a call, the 30th, Crested 325, South Gretchen, Ray, White, and South Carolina. The suspect is now <laughs> introduced to the camera. Okay, the kids I coming. Okay, the kids are coming. Too high, Just stay on the line, okay? Is he upset with something that you did? Oh, a long time ago, it always comes back.
0: Eventually, a police unit arrives to calm the situation. Nicole declined to press charges. Nicole and OJ had two children. Sydney was born in October 1985, and Justin was born in August 1988. Nicole was a devoted mother who doted over her children. She enjoyed driving the kids to school and to karate and dance lessons. In May 1994, Nicole finally decided that her relationship with OJ was over for good. In the last weeks of her life, she began reconnecting with friends with whom she had lost touch. It seemed she was finally breaking free from OJ and was looking forward to a life on her own with her children. She spent much of her time with her children and with her white dog, Kato. On June 12, 1994, she attended her daughter Sydney's dance recital. Afterwards, her father Lou, mother Juditha, and sister Denise joined her for dinner at Mezzaluna an Italian restaurant in Brentwood. They stayed at the restaurant until 8.30 p.m. when Nicole returned home. According to Denise, Nicole had a very positive outlook that night and was looking forward to the future. About an hour after Nicole got home, her mother called. She said she had forgotten her glasses at the restaurant. Nicole knew one of the waiters there and said she would ask him to bring the glasses by after his shift. He agreed and left the restaurant at 9.50 p.m. The waiter's name was Ronald Goldman. After examining the murder scene, lead detectives Tom Lang and Philip Van Adder, accompanied by detectives Ron Phillips and Mark Furman, made their way to O.J. Simpson's palatial home on Rockingham Avenue, about two miles from Nicole's house. When they arrived, they found a white Ford Bronco parked somewhat erratically on the curb by the gate. As the detectives rang the buzzer at the gate and waited for a response, Mark Furman walked around the Bronco. He noticed what looked like blood on the outside of the driver's side door, just above the handle. Looking inside the vehicle, he also saw mail that was addressed to O.J. Simpson. There was no answer at the gate, even though there were lights on inside the house. The detectives talked about what they should do. They had just left the scene of a brutal murder, and they knew that O.J.'s ex-wife was dead, as well as a man whom they had not yet identified. There were lights on inside O.J.'s home, but nobody was answering. They began to fear that O.J., or someone else inside the home, may also be hurt. They decided they had to get inside one way or another. Furman jumped the fence and opened the gate for the others. Once inside the complex, they rang the doorbell of the main house. Still no answer. After waiting for some time, they made their way to a row of three guest houses behind the main house. There, in one of the guest houses, they found a groggy guest named Cato Kalin. Kalin said he did not know where O.J. was, but something strange had happened the night before. Around 10.45 that night, he had heard several loud bumps on his bedroom wall while he was on the phone with a friend.
3: During that phone call, sir, did something unusual occur? Yes. And what was that?
2: I I heard a thumping noise.
3: How many thumps did you hear? Yes. Three. Can you demonstrate for us how loud it was? Somewhat, yes. Go ahead. Yeah, Yeah, go ahead. And where did that noise seem to be coming from?
2: From the back of the wall.
3: From behind you, where you were sitting?
2: Right, from behind the wall, from where I was sitting.
0: Furman looked around Kalen's guesthouse where he said the bumps had come from. Eventually, he came upon a glove which looked similar to the one he had seen at the crime scene. His heart began pumping and his adrenaline spiked as he immediately realized the significance of what he had found. Later, it was confirmed that this glove behind Kalen's guesthouse was for a right hand. The one found at the murder scene was for a left hand. While Furman investigated Kalen's guesthouse, the other detectives talked to Arnell. OJ's daughter who stayed in another guest house on the property. She let them into the main house and contacted OJ's secretary. The secretary told the detectives that OJ had taken a red-eye flight to Chicago the night before. Phillips called the hotel where OJ was staying and managed to speak to the celebrity. He informed OJ that his ex-wife had been killed. OJ seemed distraught and said he would get the first available flight back to L.A., OJ never asked how or when Nicole had been killed. OJ did indeed catch the first flight home. He arrived at Rockingham around noon. He had arranged for a criminal defense attorney to meet him there. While Van Adder was talking to OJ, he noticed a bandage on his left middle finger. Van Adder asked OJ to go to the station for questioning. He agreed. Before leaving, Van Adder looked around the rest of the property he found what looked like a trail of blood leading from the property gate to the front door. He looked more closely inside the Bronco and saw more blood on the center console and on the inside of the driver's side door. Inside the house, he found more drops of blood by the front door. Before long, he went to the police station to begin the process of obtaining a search warrant for O.J.'s home. O.J. Simpson's house was declared a crime scene. OJ Simpson was a household name in June 1994. He was regularly seen on NBC's football programming as a broadcaster, and he was also a successful actor. He had appeared in a number of very popular commercials for car rental company Hertz. In one typical ad, Simpson is seen running through an airport trying to get the rental car that he wants. The goal of the ad was to emphasize Hertz's commitment to fast service, and as a former NFL running back, OJ was the perfect spokesman. O.J.'s acting had also taken hold in Hollywood. He had a well-known role as Nordberg, an extremely unlucky but apparently invincible police officer in the movie franchise Police Squad. By 1994, Simpson was known around the country simply as O.J. He had been a national figure since the late 1960s when he attended the University of Southern California. There he established himself as one of the premier running backs in the country. He led the nation in rushing in both his junior and senior years. After his senior year, he won the prestigious Heisman Trophy, awarded each year to a football player who, quote, epitomizes great ability combined with diligence, perseverance, and hard work. Simpson was then drafted by the NFL's Buffalo Bills, and he signed a contract for $650,000, which at the time was the largest in professional sports history. His professional career got off to a disappointing start but in his fourth year in the league, he rushed for over 1,000 yards. In 1973, he became the first NFL running back ever to rush for over 2,000 yards. He won the NFL rushing title four times, made the Pro Bowl six times, and finished his career with the second most rushing yards ever at that time. In 1967, OJ married Marguerite Whitley. They had three children together, Arnell, Jason, and Aaron. Aaron drowned in the family swimming pool when he was two years old. While little is known about their marriage, Marguerite said that O.J. never hit her. O.J. began dating Nicole Brown in 1977 while he was still married to Marguerite. They were not divorced until 1979. O.J. and Nicole's rocky marriage ended in 1992, but they tried to reconcile until shortly before Nicole was murdered. On the night of June 12, 1994, O.J. went to McDonald's with his house guest, Cato Kaelin. OJ and Cato returned to Rockingham at about 9.35 and went their separate ways. The next time anyone saw OJ was nearly an hour and a half later, just before 11 p.m., when he emerged from the Rockingham house to load his luggage into a limousine. The limo driver, Alan Park, had been waiting for about 20 minutes and had not been able to get a response while ringing the gate buzzer. At around 11.15, Park drove OJ from the estate to the airport where he caught an American Airlines flight to Chicago for a business appointment the next day. Nicole Brown Simpson and Ronald Goldman were laid to rest on Thursday, June 16, 1994. OJ attended Nicole's funeral with their children. At one point, Nicole's mother asked him if he committed the murders. OJ's response was, I loved her. By Friday, June 17th, a warrant was issued for O.J. Simpson's arrest on two counts of murder. That morning, officials contacted Robert Shapiro, who had taken over as O.J.'s lead attorney, and told him that Simpson would have to turn himself in by 11 a.m. At the time, O.J. was staying at the home of his friend, Robert Kardashian. Shapiro made his way to Kardashian's house and informed his client that he would be taking him to the police station to surrender to police. The deadline of 11 a.m. came and went and yet O.J. remained at Kardashian's house, surrounded by a small army of attorneys, doctors, and friends. One of those present was A.C. Cowlings, an old teammate of O.J.'s on the bills. Shapiro remained in contact with police, assuring them that his client would turn himself in at some point. Eventually, the detectives ran out of patience and sent a squad car to arrest Simpson. When the squad car arrived, one of the doctors was sent to retrieve O.J., but he couldn't find him. The police officers and the rest of the people there looked everywhere in the Kardashian mansion but OJ Simpson was gone. The media, which had been eagerly following the case since Monday morning, were assembled at the police station awaiting a scheduled press conference. It was delayed several times before it finally began at almost 2 p.m. Commander David Gascon walked to the podium and told the stunned media and country that OJ had not turned himself in and was now a fugitive. Later in the day, Shapiro gave his own press conference where he pleaded with O.J. to turn himself in. He then turned the podium over to Robert Kardashian, who read a handwritten note from Simpson on live television. The long, rambling letter was interpreted by some to be a suicide note.
4: This letter was written by O.J. today. To whom it may concern, first... Everyone understand, I have nothing to do with Nicole's murder. I loved her, always have, and always will. If we had a problem, it's because I I loved her so much. Recently, we came to the understanding that for now, we were not right for each other, at least for now. Despite our love, we were different and that's why we mutually agreed to go our separate ways. It was tough splitting for a second time, but we both knew it was for the best. Inside, I had no doubt that in the future we would be close, friends or more. Unlike what has been written in the press, Nicole and I had a great relationship for most of our lives together. Like all long-term relationships, we had a few downs and ups. I took the heat New Year's 1989 because that's what I was supposed to do. I did not plead no contest for any other reason but to protect our privacy and was advised it would end the press hype. I don't want to be labor knocking the press. But I can't believe what is being said. Most of it is totally made up. I know you have a job to do, but as a last wish, please, 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 leave my children in peace their lives will be tough enough i think of my life and feel i've done most of the right things so why do i end up like this i can't go on no matter what the outcome people will look and point i can't take that i can't subject my children to that. This way, they can move on and go on with their lives. Please, if I've done anything worthwhile in my life, let my kids live in peace from you, the press. I've had a good life. I'm proud of how I lived. My mama taught me to do unto others. I treated people the way I wanted to be treated. I've always tried to be up and helpful, so why is this happening? I'm sorry for the Goldman family. I know how much it hurts. Nicole and I had a good life together. All this press talk about a rocky relationship was no more than that. I'm sorry, no more than what every long-term relationship experiences. All her friends will confirm that I have been totally loving and understanding of what she's been going through. At times, I have felt like a battered husband or boyfriend, but I loved her. Make that clear to everyone, and I would take whatever it took to make it work. Don't feel sorry for me. I've had a great life, great friends. Please think of the real OJ, and not this lost person. Thanks for making my life special. I hope I helped yours. Peace and love, OJ. At
0: 625 that night, a motorist saw a vehicle that matched the description of the white Bronco in which OJ was believed to have fled. The motorist called the California Highway Patrol, and within minutes an officer had caught up to the Bronco. A.C. Cowlings was driving. When traffic forced the vehicle to stop, officers approached it with guns drawn and ordered Cowlings to turn off the engine. Cowlings screamed at them to put their guns away. Simpson, he said, was in the back seat and had a gun to his head. The officers returned to their squad car, and as traffic began moving again, they remained behind the Bronco. Soon, a multitude of police cars were following the Bronco at low speed. At 6:46, A.C. Cowling's called 911. He asked the dispatcher to tell police to back off because O.J. had a gun to his head. He said that he was driving to Simpson's mother's house. At one point, the dispatcher asked A.C. his name. He responded, "You know who I am, goddammit!" and hung up. Media helicopters soon began following the chase as well. Nationwide, television networks interrupted their usual programming and began covering the chase live. It seemed the entire country was glued to their televisions, watching a celebrity evade capture. About 95 million people watched the low-speed chase. Finally, at just before 8 p.m., Cowlings pulled the Bronco into OJ's driveway on Rockingham. The estate was packed with media members, satellite trucks, and a SWAT team. Cowlings lowered the driver's side window and yelled at police to back away, insisting once again that O.J. had a gun and was suicidal. The police, however, were not about to let the suspect get away again. They did not back away. SWAT commander Pete Weirider was able to reach Simpson on his cell phone. O.J. promised that he would not hurt anyone except himself and asked to speak to his mother. When Weirider assured O.J. that he could speak to his mother once he surrendered, he finally agreed. Slowly, Simpson climbed out of the Bronco at 8:53 p.m. Inside the vehicle was a travel bag containing OJ's passport, a fake goatee, fake mustache, makeup remover, and a fully loaded 357 handgun. OJ Simpson was transferred to the jail, where he spent the night on suicide watch. On Monday, June 20th, he was arraigned for the murders of Nicole Brown Simpson and Ronald Goldman. Ronald Goldman was almost 26 years old at the time he was killed. He had grown up in a Chicago suburb, primarily with his father, Fred, and younger sister, Kim. By all accounts, Ron was a good kid. He spent time as a camp counselor and had also volunteered to help disabled children. When he was 18, Ron joined his family in Southern California. There, he enjoyed surfing, playing beach volleyball, rollerblading, and going out on the town to nightclubs. At various times, he supported himself as an employment recruiter, tennis instructor, and even as a model. For a time, he planned on becoming an emergency medical technician, although that career path never panned out. Ron's dream, according to friends, was to open his own restaurant in Brentwood. At some point in the weeks or months prior to their deaths, Ron and Nicole Brown Simpson became friends. Ron borrowed Nicole's Ferrari once when he went to lunch with a friend. While Ron and Nicole apparently began spending a significant amount of time together, they told friends that their relationship was purely platonic. At the time of his death, Ron was a waiter at Messaluna Trattoria. On the evening of June 12, 1994, he was working at the restaurant when Nicole and her family came in for dinner. Sometime after she left, Nicole called the restaurant and asked Ron if he could retrieve her mother's glasses, which she had left at the restaurant. He did so and agreed to drop them off at Nicole's place after his shift ended at 9.30. Ron spent a little time at the restaurant bar talking to his friend Stuart Tanner before he departed. The two had plans to go out later in the evening. At around 9.45, Ron left the restaurant, carrying Nicole's mother's glasses in an envelope. He first went to his apartment to change out of his work clothes. He then went to Nicole's house at 875 Bundy Drive.
3: Approximately what time was it when you last saw Ron in the restaurant?
1: The I I think he left somewhere in the neighborhood of of before ten o'clock, 10, 10 minutes to ten, somewhere in that neighborhood. Um, I didn't ever see him. <clears throat> pardon me, I didn't ever see him leave the building. Um, Ron w- walked past me, going towards the front door of the restaurant and saying that he would talk to me later. But I never saw him exit out that front door. I never saw him exit out the back door either.
3: So the last time you saw him, he was going towards the front door area, but you did not see him leave. Right. And that was at approximately, uh, what time?
1: Quarter to 10, roughly. Quarter to ten, ten minutes to 10, somewhere in that.
3: And what was the last thing he said to you?
1: Uh, He said he'd talk to me later.
3: What time did you get home,
1: sir? 11.30ish.
3: Did you hear from Ron? No, I did not. Did you ever hear from him again?
1: No, I did not.
0: Less than a month after the murders, O.J. Simpson was brought to court for a preliminary hearing. The purpose of the hearing was to determine if there was enough evidence to bring him to trial for the murders. The normally routine hearing was the focus of intense media coverage and public curiosity. After a week, Judge Kathleen Kennedy Powell ruled that there was sufficient evidence to bring OJ to trial. On July 22nd, Simpson returned to court for a second arraignment hearing. There, when he was asked how he pleaded to the charges, he responded, absolutely, 100%, not guilty. The full trial did not begin until January 24th, 1995. All of the proceedings were televised and watched by millions of Americans. The case very quickly became known as the Trial of the Century. The prosecution, led by Marsha Clark, depicted O.J. as a violent, jealous man who went to Nicole's house on the night of June 12th with the intention of killing her. They presented their theory that O.J. attacked Nicole just outside of the front door, knocking her to the base of the stairs. There, he pulled her head back with her hair and slit her throat with a knife, nearly decapitating her. According to the prosecution theory, Ron Goldman arrived at the house during or shortly after Nicole's murder and was also attacked by OJ. Goldman suffered stab wounds to the face, neck, chest, abdomen, and thigh. The fatal wound was a transection of his left jugular vein. The prosecution relied heavily on the fact that OJ was not seen by anyone between 9.36 and 10.54 p.m. that night. The murders were believed by everyone, including the defense to have occurred between those times. They told the jury about the multiple times that Nicole had called police for protection from OJ during his jealous rages, and they played the 911 tapes from those calls. Pictures were presented showing apparent injuries to Nicole's face after one such incident. DNA was a relatively new technology in 1995, and this was one of the first high profile cases to feature DNA evidence. DNA analysis of blood found inside OJ's home indicated that it was Nicole's. Additional DNA analysis showed that some of the blood found on OJ's bronco belonged to Nicole and Ron. Blood found on the left hand glove, the one found at the crime scene, appeared to be a mixture of OJ's, Nicole's, and Ron's blood. And some of Ron's blood was found on the right hand glove that was dropped behind Kato Kalin's guest house. In addition to DNA evidence, the prosecution also showed that strands of hair found on Ron's shirt were consistent with OJ's hair. The left-hand glove, which was found at the crime scene, and the right-hand glove found at OJ's house were shown to be a match. The bloody shoe prints that Officer Risky found were identified as having been made by a pair of extremely rare size 12 Bruno Mali shoes, of which only 29 pairs had been made. A photograph from 1993 was shown depicting O.J. in a pair of the shoes. It took nearly six months for the prosecution to present its case. They called 58 witnesses to the stand. They emphasized the physical evidence in the case, especially the DNA evidence. They also continually reminded the jury that O.J. was suspected of being violent towards Nicole. Their last witness finally completed his testimony on July 6, 1995. In her closing statement, Prosecutor Marsha Clark emphasized the vast amount of evidence in the case.
3: But in a circumstantial evidence case, especially this one, you have many things to rely on. You have the blood at Bundy. You have the blood of Nicole on his socks. You have his blood on the rear gate at Bundy. You have Ronald Goldman's blood in his car. You have his his hair on Ron Goldman's shirt. You have the, the fiber from his clothing on Ron Goldman's shirt, on his socks, on the Rockingham glove. You have the bronco carpet fiber on the on the uh rockingham glove. You have the bronco bronco carpet fiber on the knit ski cap.
0: The defense's case primarily centered around two factors, race and police misconduct. O.J. Simpson was an African-American and the jury included nine African-Americans. This was a prominent feature for the defense. On March 15th, Defense Attorney F. Lee Bailey was cross-examining Detective Mark Furman. Furman had been the first detective at the crime scene. He is also the person who discovered the blood on OJ's Bronco and the glove behind Cato Kalin's guest house. During the cross-examination, Bailey asked Furman, who was under oath, if he had used the derogatory N-word to refer to an African-American at any time in the previous 10 years. Furman responded that he had not. Later in the trial, the defense presented audio tapes on which Furman had repeatedly used the N-word. The tapes had been made with Furman's cooperation by an author who was writing a book about the police. Because the tapes had been made over the course of the previous nine years, this proved that Furman had committed perjury. More importantly for the defense, it portrayed Furman as a racist. The defense continued to attack Furman's character, claiming he hated interracial couples and had a history of violence toward African Americans. They also presented evidence that Furman had admitted to fabricating evidence in the past. In defense attorney Johnny Cochran's closing statement, he called Furman a, quote, lying, perjuring, genocidal racist. The defense had used Furman's past, as well as some inconsistencies in the way evidence was handled, to insist to the jury that there had been misconduct on the part of the police. They argued that Furman had planted evidence at the crime scene and had planted the glove at O.J.'s residence. They got Los Angeles Police Department criminalist Dennis Fung, who processed much of the blood evidence, to admit that he had not completely followed proper protocol. They also got Detective Philip Van Adder, one of the lead detectives at the crime scene, to admit that he had seen some members of the media leaning on O.J.'s bronco before it had been processed for evidence. Another argument made by O.J.'s attorneys was that he was not physically capable of committing the murders. They said that he was an aging former football player who suffered from severe arthritis and knee problems. Goldman, they said, was young and fit and would not have been overpowered by O.J. The defense also tried to cast doubt on some of the prosecution's evidence. They said there was no proof that Simpson had ever bought a pair of size 12 Bruno Mali shoes and there were no witnesses testifying to selling them to him. In perhaps the most sensational moment of the trial, and what became one of the defense's key arguments, the prosecution had O.J. try on the bloody gloves. They were too small. The prosecution argued that they had been warped by being exposed to blood and by being frozen and thawed several times. The defense, however, claimed that they did not fit because they were not O.J.'s gloves. The defense rested its case on September 21, 1995, eight months after the trial began. Johnny Cochran closed the defense's case by asking the jury not to forget what he felt was a racist and corrupt police force.
2: This is a case
3: about an innocent man, wrongfully accused. You've seen him now for a year and two days. You've observed him in the good times and the bad times.
5: Soon it'll be your turn. You have the keys to his future. You have the evidence by which you can acquit this man. You have not only the patience, but the integrity
4: and the courage to do the right thing. We believe you'll do the right thing. And the right thing
3: is to find this man Not guilty. Both of these charges.
0: The case went to the jury on October 2nd, 1995. Many people expected the deliberations to take days, if not weeks, but after just four hours, the jury notified the judge that they had reached a verdict. Media pundits speculated as to what the short deliberation might mean. Many thought it meant that the jury had come to a guilty verdict. An estimated 100 million people tuned in to watch the verdict on television or listen to it on the radio. Officials in Los Angeles were worried that a guilty verdict might lead to riots, so security was extremely tight. All traffic around the courthouse was shut off. Dozens of officers on horseback patrolled around the building. Police officers around the city were placed on high alert. At 10 a.m. on the morning of October 3rd, 1995, the jury filed into their seats, and prepared to issue their verdict. O.J. Simpson rose to receive it.
3: All right, Mr. Mr. Simpson, would you please stand and face the jury?
5: Mrs. Robertson.
2: Superior Court of California, County of Los Angeles. In the matter of the people of the state of California versus Orenthal James Simpson, case number BA097211, We, the jury, in the above entitled action, find the defendant, Orenthal James Simpson, not guilty of the crime of murder in violation of Penal Code Section 187A, a felony upon Ronald Lyle Goldman, a human being, as charged in Count 2 of the information.
0: Although O.J. Simpson was acquitted of the murders, his time in court was not over. Ron Goldman and Nicole Brown Simpson's families sued Simpson in civil court. The court found OJ responsible for the deaths and ordered him to pay the victim's families $33.5 million. In 2008, Simpson was convicted of kidnapping, burglary, and other felonies for violently trying to retrieve memorabilia that had been taken from him in Las Vegas, Nevada. He served nine years in prison for the crime. Pablo Fenves, who described hearing the distressed Akita whining outside his window on the night of the murders, helped O.J. write a book in 2006 titled If I Did It. The book was described as a hypothetical confession on the part of O.J., who describes what might have happened at 875 Bundy Drive on June 12, 1994. The Goldman family won the rights to the book and eventually released it with the subtitle Confessions of the Killer. In the 25 years since Ron's death, Fred Goldman has continually professed his belief that O.J. Simpson committed the murders. He recently spoke about his son on an episode of the Steve Harvey Show.
5: Ron was a truly a good soul. Always had a smile on his face, always was looking to help others. Um, He stepped up when Nicole's mother's glasses were found and he offered to return them when he didn't have to. And it cost him his life. Because I think if anyone remembers some of the information from the trial, it was someone that heard someone call out, hey, 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 I think it was Ron who walked into a crime that had begun. And he could have chose to run away, but that would not have been Ron. I wish he had but it would not have been my son.
0: Nicole's family has also kept her memory alive. Her sister, Denise, has done extensive work over the last 25 years to raise awareness about domestic violence. Tanya, another of Nicole's sisters, has worked to increase awareness about depression and mental illness. All of Nicole's surviving family wants the world to remember the person she was.
2: Nicole... Was a mom. She put her kids first. She put
3: everybody else first. My sister had the ability to live life, live it bright, live it large, um, and just
1: she ha- she had fun.
0: Thank you for listening to this Crimes and History podcast. For suggestions or comments, please find us on Twitter at Crimes History.